Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Kiblinska, and I'm joined here today by Professor Julia Schneider, so two Julias. Uh, we will be talking about Professor Schneider's book, Nation and Ethnicity, Chinese Discourses on History, Historiography, and Nationalism, um, which was published with Brill in 2017. The book is an erudite study of early 20th century theories of Chinese nationalism. And by erudite, I really mean it. It's such a um, commendable effort to make sure everything is footnoted and you can look up all these sources and confirm um, how much work Professor Schneider has done. Um, in the book, uh, she considers the writings of Qing reformers, Liang Qichao, of course, and complicates received narratives about Manch anti-Manchu revolutionaries Zhang Taiyan and Liu Shipei, as well as traces the afterlives of their earlier writings in Republican-era theories of nation and assimilation that informed historiography and textbook writing in this period. Reconciling the idea of a, quote, Chinese nation with, quote, China, a variously construed geographic entity occupied and ruled in large part by non-Han ethnicities throughout its year, many years of history, becomes a key problem in these thinkers' writings. Liang Qichao's assimilation thesis, a theory that assumed non-Han groups become culturally subsumed by China as they rule over it, gains critical currency, um, as Schneider shows in her thorough analysis of all these sources. Uh, Nation and Ethnicity is a long volume that will delight serious scholars in its meticulous detail and attention to language and translation. Um, the ethical stakes raised by Schneider's project, however, should interest a broad audience working in Chinese studies. In the podcast, we will lay out Schneider's arguments, theories of nationalism that inform her work, and the historical context against which her protagonists wrote. Um, while new to this podcast, the book has been out for several years, so in addition to learning about this monograph, we will also get to hear about some of the new publications um, that Professor Schneider has been producing in a recent article and a recent presentation on Chinese nationalism. Um, so, Julia, welcome to the podcast. I wonder if we can start first with a little bit of a biography, an introduction, learning more about your background. Thank you so much, Julia. Um, first of all, for having me in this podcast and yeah, for giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. This is great. Um, 
Yeah, my background is uh, classical sinology, as we called it then. I actually began to study modern sinology and then uh, changed to classical sinology because the earlier history just seemed more interesting to me. And I also wanted to get a thorough education in reading classical Chinese texts. Um, when I studied in um, God, in the, the late 1990s and early 2000s, the BAMA system actually hadn't been introduced to German universities yet. I studied in Heidelberg University um, and all you could do was an MA. So either you went through with it or you, did, you had nothing at all at the end. Um, and in classical sinology, we would usually be, well, I think in my year, it was only me who graduated. Um, so it was a very, very small field. And I th think it still is, actually. It's a very small field, at least uh, yeah, in Europe. Um, so I studied classical sinology, learned about Chinese history. And in one of my seminars, we read Pamela Crossley's Thinking About Ethnicity. And in this text, which I found very fascinating, very interesting, she actually hints at um, the fact that a study would be needed to see how the, she, the sinicization theory, um, what I call, usually I call um, assimilation theory in my book, that this sinicization theory needs more studying and more historical context when it actually developed. When, when did Chinese thinkers come up with this idea that sinicization was a valid way to integrate people into a identity group and then of course also into the nation? So this is what led me to my PhD topic. Um, another thing is that I did my MA thesis about the Georgian Jin dynasty in the 12th and 13th um, centuries. And I revisited a lot of um, Chinese academic literature that was written about the, the Georgian in the 20th century um, and also, um, also Western literature. And it struck me as a bit strange that the Georgian were described as the foremost example of a sinicized dynasty, of a so-called foreign conquest dynasty that was then sinicized and, and so on and so forth. This is a typical pattern, of course, to describe um, non-Chinese dynasties. And I revisited the sources um, from, usually not from Jin times, they are from Yuan times and later. And my conclusion was actually a different one. And um, I thought, okay, this is not a sinicized dynasty. It's it's just a narrative that was that emerged someone in the 20th century. So that was the other strand that brought me to my PhD uh, thesis uh, or the topic of my PhD because I thought, okay, it's going to be interesting to to see when did this narrative pattern of sinicization, particularly of non Han of non Chinese dynasties, but then also of non Chinese peoples in general. Um, living in, in the closest surroundings of the Chinese, when did that actually emerge as such a strong um, pattern in Chinese historiography? Well, thank you so much. And I have been remiss. I have not told our readers yet, in fact, a little bit more about your uh, intellectual journey via institutions. So I want to underscore that um, Dr. Schneider indeed holds a PhD in Sinology from Ghent and Göttingen Universities and is currently a professor at the um, College of Cork. Yeah, University College Cork. University yeah. College Cork. Apologies, the European system is always uh, 
something that needs translation on my end. Uh, yes, so so now that uh, we have that little bit introduction that tells uh, tells us how you came to the project, um, I want to say that I was quite taken with the introduction to your book. You lay out a very complex academic field, the study of nationalism, and undoubtedly a field that will only become more complex and more relevant, right, in our current situation. I will admit that I needed to think very carefully about how best to phrase each one of my questions because so many of the terms in the book are quite slippery and not as self-evident as they seem. Um, can you start by telling us why the nation and nationalism are so tricky to define in regard to one another? Hmm, thank you very much for this question. And thanks that you liked my introduction. When I um, handed in the book, I actually thought, okay, oh God, it's it's too long. You know, it's a very, very, it's actually not a real introduction. It's more like, a, I don't know. <laughs> but when I wrote it, I just, it, it, yeah, I had the same feeling that you just described. I just couldn't do it in less words because it is such a complex um, concept, or they are, because um, both the concept of nation and the concept of nationalism are important. So on the one hand, both these concepts are, in my understanding, very empty. They are not perceived filled with any meaning at all, I would say. So they are, when, we, when I use them in my book, um, I usually do not give my own definitions because I actually don't have a definition of these two terms, but I explain how individuals define these terms, how they use them in their texts. And that doesn't mean that <laughs> it gets less slippery because it really depends on the individual person, but also on the time they're writing in, on the context of their political, uh, on their political agenda, how they understand the nation and nationalism. And they might actually change their view over time, as happened in the case of Zhang Taiyan in particular. Um, the nation and nationalism, I think, are particularly tricky when it comes to China because of the terminology. Um, and as you, as you know, nation is usually translated as minzu in Chinese. But minzu is not really only nation, it's, it's rather the ethno-nation, in contrast to Guotia, which is the state nation. And I think it, it's quite telling, however, that the term minzu stuck um, to create the term minzu jui. Um, whereas, of course, in um, the, the Japanese thinkers, political thinkers who, who analyze the question of nationalism would often use both Guotia Jui, the state, national, state nationalism, and Minzu Jui, ethno nationalism. But the Chinese political thinkers, for some reason, thought, thought that uh, Minzu Jui would be more suitable to their needs or, what, or in regard to what they understood to be the nation. And the nation, obviously, in their understanding, is an ethno-nation that is a nation defined by ethnic identity. Now, ethnicity can be, it's also very slippery. <laughs> it's a bit clearer than nation, I would say. But it's still, it's, it's very much based on subjective um, identity markers. And both nation and ethnicity, or the ethno-nation, are... Are, are concepts that rely on belief only, right? You will never be able to know everyone that shares a nationalist identity with you, but you have to, you have to like, like Benedict Anderson pointed out, you have to imagine this shared identity. And at the same time, if you ask single members of one nation what they think the nation is, you will get 
single answers to that. And they will not be, I mean, there will be overlaps, but it's usually, it can be very diverse. So I think this is what makes these concepts of nation and nationalism so slippery, because there is no definition of them that will hold all definitions that have been made. So as I'm not a nationalist, I don't have to make, I don't have to give a definition, I feel. I am a historian of intellectual history. So this is my interest to describe other people's definitions and to understand what they are doing with these terms so that they fit into their idea of um, uh, of politics and of, of, yeah, basically of the future in the case of the Chinese nationalist thinkers. Absolutely. Well, we won't require a definition from you, but I will say that you're right. It is a long introduction, but I do think it lays out the questions um, very clearly and accessibly, and perhaps with some redaction could even be a good assignment for undergraduate students to read. Uh, I, I hear they can't go past 30 pages a week, um, at least in my institution. So perhaps not the full 50, but there's there's some editing that can be done to, to help ease the process and introduce them to some really great ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but let's move on to something that you've already uh, hinted towards, which is that China plays an interesting role in these discussions of nationalism and one that has been understudied or underrepresented. So how does it fit into ideas of nationalism that are developed primarily in Western Europe, right? Um, And more aptly, maybe how does it not fit and what are you doing and how are you intervening into that conversation? Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's, That's a great question. Actually, one reason why I chose the title the the main title of my book, Nation and Ethnicity, was because I wanted to, I don't know, it was kind of a stubbornness because all these Western books about nationalism and nations, they never mention in their titles that they are actually focused on Europe. So they just say nations and nationalism since the 1780s or something like that, um, not indicating at all that, of course, they won't be discussing anything beyond Europe. So I thought I can do the same, you know, I I can also have such a generic main title and then only uh, tell people in the subtitle that what I'm focusing on is actually China. (laughs) But of course, at the same time, um, indicating that studying China or studying non-Europe is just as relevant as studying Europe. Um, Yeah, the history of nationalism studies is quite interesting. And I think um, it has to do with with the individual origins of the scholars who began studying nationalism in post-World War II. And a lot of them were actually um, came from, from families who had been affected or murdered in the Holocaust. So um, they came from, from Eastern Europe and they had, and they were usually, or many of them were actually against nationalism and had seen the dangers of nationalism. And, of course, they began researching their own surroundings, which would usually be Europe or, in many cases, also Israel and and what happened there. Um, Other parts of the world were just not considered uh, important to the development of nationalist theories. And it was usually claimed that, I mean, with so many theories, not only in political sciences, but also in historiography, that the, the origin is Europe. And then you use this theory maybe with an adjective added to it to for other world regions. And the same is true for nationalism, right? So in national so in Europe you have these two big brands of nationalism, civic and ethnic, and then this is transferred to other world regions that usually develop, let me 
put it very bluntly, lesser kinds of nationalisms, right? So they are not important to study. And if China is mentioned at all in these books, it's usually misunderstood as a hom- as the example of a homogeneous nation state and a homogeneous nation in a homogeneous nation state. And of course, I mean, if you look at the numbers and think, yeah, 92% today uh, uh, of the people in, in the PRC are registered as Han Chinese, it seems to be very homogeneous. Of course, it's not. I mean, the Han are not homogeneous at all. Plus, you have these um, outnumbered but still very relevant non-Chinese peoples who, at least until recently, um, uh, lived in vast areas and were quite alone in these areas, right? I mean, there were not a lot of Chinese um, settling there. So describing China no matter if, if it's the PRC or Republican China or Imperial China, as a homogeneous uh, nation or a homogeneous state is just wrong. But of course, it, um, for, these, for these books about Europe, it, it's not relevant at all um, to look at China. Now, I think China um, is very interesting if we want to look at multi-ethnic empires that are transfer, transformed into, well, nation states and then have to answer the the so-called minority question or or nationality question of what to do with the with the minorities right a question that was posed in russia in austria hungary in wherever you find these multi-ethnic empires so i think china does um, have a lot to offer with regard to nationalism studies Let's make sure that we cross-post this episode then with new books in history so that it it reaches the audience who maybe are not looking out for nation and ethnicity um, with Chinese characteristics, if I may be so glib. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so as I've already mentioned in this introduction, the idea of assimilation theories play an important role, right? Sinicization theories in the work of um, Pamela Crossley you've mentioned, right? Um, What is an assimilation theory? Why do thinkers like Liang Qichao insist on bringing, quote unquote, these barbarians, right? And that's the term that he uses or that is used commonly into the fold. Who are the non-Han people and why do they matter? Why are they kind of intrinsic, actually, to the study of Chinese history, according to your project? Yeah. Um, Well, the assimilation theory or assimilation theories are basically theories that assume that identities of people, usually ethnic or cultural identities of people can be changed, can be transformed. And this idea in the Chinese context, of course, it's centuries old. You can find this idea already in in, in warring states uh, period texts. Um, And so I think when Chinese political thinkers um, in late Qing times read about assimilation theories in Western books on nationalism, they felt, oh, we can relate to that very easily because, of course, um, if you have a superior cultural people, it automatically transforms, assimilates, acculturates um, this, the inferior people, the barbarians. So I think the assimilation theory was um, was nothing entirely new to Chinese nationalist thinkers with their culturalist understandings of the world. Um, And at the same time, it provided the perfect solution to the uh, nationalities question. So what to do with the non-Han or the non-Chinese 
peoples that lived in the Qing Empire, actually played a very important political role in the Qing Empire, what to do with them in a new Chinese nation state. Well, um, thinkers like Liang Qichao assumed they would just automatically come and be transformed, right? Um, without the state actually having to do much. Now, this... Um, naive assumption maybe of Liang Qichao was not shared by all. Zhang Taiyan, for example, thinks that there need to be um, state-guided measures um, to be put in place to, to make these people assimilate. But what is common to all these late imperial thinkers is that they all believe, first of all, that the Chinese are superior, and second, that they have this power to assimilate others. They only differ on their understanding of if that would be a good idea or not. Now, Liang Qichao, <laughs> I think after I read all his texts that are related to this question of ethnicity, in the end, I thought he's actually obsessed with the question of non-Chinese peoples and how to integrate them into the nation state. Um, with the other thinkers, I think it's not as extreme. Then on the other hand, Liang Qichao had, I mean, he wrote so much that maybe he was obsessed with a lot of things. <laughs> but um, he is, so he is absolutely certain that the assimilation theory will work and that the Chinese nation state can truly be Chinese, um, meaning Han Chinese nation state with a Chinese culture, with Chinese, everybody using Chinese script, living according to a Chinese understanding of the way of life, etc., etc. Um, now, who are these non-Chinese people? Um, they mainly talk about the, the Manchus, of course, as, as the imperial family and the ruling elites. They also talk about the Mongols. Similarly, they are also part of the ruling elite. And then, of course, Mongolia was a, a large part, or inner and outer Mongolia formed a large part of the Qing Empire. So it was clear that they needed to be integrated or they would lose a large, large region. Similar Tibetans. Um, and then people they called Hui which usually refers to Muslims in general, but I think in their case, it usually refers to Turkic-speaking Muslims um, who today we would call them Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, etc., etc. Um, so these are the non-Han people, and they matter, of course, because they occupy, I think, three-fifths of the Qing territory. So if they couldn't be integrated in some way or other, this would mean that the Chinese nation state would, would be much smaller than the Qing Empire. And that was obviously not desired. So Chinese political thinkers usually assumed that it was desirable to inherit the Qing Empire's territory to establish the new Chinese nation state and thus inherit the multi-ethnic composition of this empire. And then, yeah, what to do with it in a non-multi-ethnic nation state. So you've mentioned some other thinkers, um, in particular the anti-Manchu Zhang Taiyan, but also um, his anti-Manchu comrade Liu Shipei, are usually construed as thinkers who diverge from Liang's reformist agendas. Um, but how does his thinking inform their ideas about the Chinese nation? So perhaps even you can start with Zhang Taiyan, right, whom you've already uh, name-dropped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Zhang Taiyan, I mean, he's a very interesting thinker because he, as I said, I think he maybe he changed his opinion or maybe he um, expressed different opinions for different readerships. I'm not entirely sure which of the two is true um, because he does express very um, different opinions in different texts 
And I find that very interesting because that that makes you wonder, okay, uh, did he change his opinion? Did he always, you know, why is that? Uh, and one of the most well-known texts by Zhang Taiyan is, of course, his um, explaining the Chinese, uh, the Republic of China, Zhonghua Mingguojie, um, written in 19, or published in 1907. And the interesting thing about this text is that it has been analyzed in a way that seems to indicate that Zhang Taiyan did not want the non-Chinese um, regions to be part of the nations of the Chinese nation state if they decided they wanted to be to found their own nation states. Um, but if you read this text really from beginning till end, it's obvious that he does want these regions to be part of the Chinese nation state. It's very clear. And he does not only want them to be part of the Chinese nation state, but also he wants the Tibetans, the Turkic Muslims, and um, the Mongols to assimilate to Chinese ways, Chinese language, writing, political thinking, what he calls political thinking, etc., etc. And he even has a time plan saying that it would take about 20 years to make this assimilation complete um, until, so and as long as the, the assimilation is not complete, these people can, of course, not participate fully in the nation state's politics or in the government, but then afterwards they could. So I think um, Zhang Taiyan is an, so, and maybe you have noticed that I have not mentioned the Manchus because he doesn't mention the Manchus in his text. The Manchus are an exception, so to speak, from, from the non-Chinese people in his opinion, because the Manchus are, of course, the absolute villains in his understanding, right? They are, um, they are autocratic, they are despotic, they, they have mismanaged the Qing Empire, which he understands is the Chinese Empire, so they, have, they are not really worth to be integrated in the Chinese nation. So it is a bit, he doesn't clearly say in this text what he, what he wants to do with them, but it's clear that he doesn't, he, he doesn't really believe in their assimilation. Well, he doesn't really tell what, what he thinks would happen to them after after one after a Chinese nation state is founded. But anyway, so um, he has these um, these different approaches to the Manchus and the other three. What is interesting, though, is that although he refers to the other three. Uh, seemingly individually, in the end, they are just all barbarians and they are on the same non-civilized, non-cultivated level and need education. They need help from, from the superior Chinese to be lifted up to another level of, of being, so to speak. Um, so Zhang Taiyan, I would argue, in the end, came to the conclusion that it was desirable to integrate these people into a future Chinese nation state. I would, I would guess because of, um, or I think because he knew that the more, the, the bigger the territory, the more, the larger the population, the stronger the nation. Now, Liu Shipei had a different idea. Of course, Liu Shipei also believed in the superiority of the Chinese people. And he also even believed in their ability to assimilate. He only disagreed with Zhang Taiyan and Liang Qichao on the fact that he thought assimilating non-Chinese peoples would dilute China, the, the, the Chinese essence, right? the national essence of the Chinese. So it would be bad to integrate too many non-Chinese people because this would just pollute um, Chinese culture and identity. But I think in the end, what is interesting is, yeah, that they all share, of course, this absolute belief in Chinese superiority, cultural superiority. So maybe we can turn a little back 
towards the intellectual context um, and the political context that these thinkers are writing in. One of the big new ideas that's circulating in China at the end of the 19th century and that really informs the collapse of the Manchu Empire is the social Darwinism, um, which had been imported, of course, to China by Yan Fu's translation of Spencer. How does this evolutionary theory intersect with these declensionist theories of Tianxia are all under heaven? And declension, by declensionist, I mean, of course, the Manchus are losing their, their mandate, right, at this moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, so first of all, I think Tianxia and social Darwinism are similar in that they assume a hierarchy, right? A hierarchy of peoples. So you have peoples who are like the Chinese, who are um, culturally, but for some thinkers also racially superior to others. And then you have other people who are inferior, both racially and culturally. Um, and I think that this idea of cultural superiority is very strong in the Tianxia concept but it is a, I think the racial idea is disguised already there. So it's already in the Tianxia concept, there's already this idea that there could also be a racial superiority. Not all thinkers would follow that, but there are thinkers, at least from Ming and Qing times, who, who did argue in that way, um, that there was a racially ingrained superiority, superiority of the Chinese people, which means, in the end means, if, it's, if, if superiority is racially ingrained, then it's more difficult to assimilate others because it's difficult to change a race where it's easier to change a culture. Um, and I think these two concepts of, of the understanding of Tianxia with its culturalist idea of, of, of the Chinese at the center of cultivation and civilization and then the others um, surrounding them in circles and the, the farther, further apart these circles are from the center, the further removed these peoples are from, from culture and civilization, that this fit quite well with social Darwinism and the idea of um, who is supposed to, to guide the others, to dominate the others, and not only supposed, but who has the right to do that legitimately. Um, and in social Darwinism, we also find this idea that there are just people who are stronger than others or fitter than others, and they are then legitimately allowed to um, to dominate these others and to yeah to tell them basically what to do. So now maybe we can take a step back even further from the book um, to ask about the impact of this assimilation theory that you've described on Chinese historiography, both the historiography you describe, but also on the the modern discipline of history in, in the Chinese context that has emerged in this early 20th century and how it is practiced today. Like what are the stakes of what you're saying, even for you as a scholar? Hmm. Mm, I think the assimilation theory in, in Chinese historiography um, hasn't really being questioned much. So you can find it as a, as a very normal reference in, in history textbooks in particular that emerged uh, in the 1920s and afterwards. Um, it's, so by the 1930s, it's already a, a 
totally accepted, absolutely normal narrative to, to talk about non-Chinese peoples as being assimilated peoples, and in particular about the non-Chinese dynasties. Um, and of course, today, this just continues. So non-Chinese dynasties, non-Chinese peoples that live within the PRC today are either described as already being assimilated and synthesized or as being in the process of being synthesized and assimilated. And by that narrative, what happens, I think, are at least two things. On the one hand, it legitimizes why or it explains and, and justifies why a Chinese government can rule all these non-Chinese people and dominate them, basically. But at the same time, it also implements this narrative deeply into, the, uh, into for example, school children's understandings of history. So they will not question this narrative. Of course not. I mean, if, if you have been studying this um, since class one of history, then of course you, you believe it, right? There are no alternative histories told. Um, so the assimilation theory is politically important because it, um, yeah, it, it explains why the situation is fine as it is and why nationalism is, so to speak, not for everyone. I mean, the basic theory of nationalism being that every nation has the right to establish a nation state. But obviously there are peoples who are either not really nations, like from the Chinese perspective, that would be the, the Tibetans say. Um, and so this has to be explained. Why are these people not allowed to have their own nation state? So why is this really, why is China a Chinese nation state? So I think this is uh, the main use of the assimilation theory. And for me as a scholar, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's very problematic and, um, reading articles about school education and history in uh, contemporary China is just, to be honest, very depressing, um, because it is so nationalist. And I think nowadays we already see uh, the consequences of that, um, well, I don't want to go too far, but with, for example, Chinese students coming coming to, to Europe to study, um, there's often a clash because they have been learning all these assimilation theories and these ideas of cultural superiority, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you have to somehow de-educate or, I don't know, it's nearly impossible to eradicate that and tell a new story because it is so strongly ingrained in them. So... The historical context we're living in is quite tumultuous um, for yourself now as a writer of Chinese history and a teacher of Chinese history. But one of the through lines of your book is really the, the tumult of history, the, the context of history that is informing all of these writings and all of these ideas about nationalism um, that perhaps maybe if we can think optimistically will like allow things to change in a positive way, you know, looking toward the future. But not looking towards the future, looking towards the past. One of the things that I found you know, attractive in your book as somebody who works primarily with uh, things like you know, literary form is the attention that you pay to the writing itself, right? So um, if you could humor me, um, can you feel that kind of tumult in the writing? Like as you're reading, is there this sort of trace of that kind of material background of the history that they're living through? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, on the one hand, so I think it's, to me, it was visible mainly indirectly by just the gap between between basically the Xinhai Revolution and the early 19, or late 1910s, so 
bit after Yuanchikai's death. So I think this was just a, a period of nearly... I mean, they must have written texts, I guess they did, but they didn't publish a, a lot. And I think that's interesting. What I find equally interesting is that um, be, maybe because of that gap, only very few thinkers made it from being widely published in late Qing times and still being widely published in the 1920s. And I would say Liang Zichao is one of the few, although I'm not so sure if people in the 1920s were still so attracted to what he had to say, because there were, of course, other things on offer, like uh, uh, like communism, for example, Marxism. Um, in Liang Zichao's writing, and that is interesting, he, you can't really see that change. So... Um, and that's why, I, why I'm not sure his writings were still very attractive in the 1920s, because he seems to have been in a, you know, um, like he had slept for the last decade and then just awakens in the 1920s and still thinks that these that the assimilation theory totally works and that everything is just, you know, needs time and then it's going to sort itself out, which obviously wasn't the case. I mean, by then, um, Tibet had declared independence, Mongolia had declared independence. Uh, Xinjiang was ruled quasi independently by a warlord, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, I think the main um, the main thing is that these thinkers that we have a shift of thinkers um, over the time and between the Xinhai and Revolution and May Fourth, or yeah. Okay, so speaking of uh, the so-called other that impacts the development of Chinese history. Uh, Japan, of course, is important. It's a place that many thinkers had to flee, but it's even much more than just a safe haven. It's also a place where these Chinese thinkers come into contact with modern Japanese ideas about Chinese history, which are, of course, strongly informed by modern uh, ideas that are coming from Europe. And one area of historical inquiry that Japanese scholars seem to be thinking a lot about is periodization. And you talk um, about these periodization schemes in one of your chapters. Even, even there's even a very fun table with various propositions, um, which you know, of course, like immediately shows us the degree to which these things are as well. I don't want us to call them fully empty, but like malleable. Um, what is the import of periodization? Why do we care about that? Uh, why is there such an intense need to periodize? And what do Chinese thinkers accept and or reject from the Japanese periodization of Chinese mm. history? Oh, I'm so glad you liked the table. I had immense fun drawing it, actually, <laughs> because it shows you in, uh, yeah, in one second how chaotic um, the periodization was and that there was no straightforward way to periodize Chinese history at all. And I think there still isn't. I mean, we we use terms like Chinese antiquity um, and sometimes we also say, I don't know, medieval China, but it's very loose. It's still not entirely clear what we actually mean, mean by that when we use these terms. So I think, I just give a short answer, I'm conscious of the time. Um, I think they wanted to be modern by using a European concept, usually of a threefold periodization, and they just wanted to make it work. So they all thought about different um, arguments and structures and uh, and ways to just take this European periodization, which was clearly developed for Europe and European history. And even there, I guess it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it doesn't fit all histories in Europe um, and, and use it for Chinese history in order to show that Chinese history wasn't an equal standing with Western history. I think this is the main, the main reason why they did it. 
Yeah, and then of course the sort of Japanese intervention here to position Japan vis-a-vis that received history of China, but also these new ideas from the West. So uh, for those who are curious about that process, I really uh, encourage you to take a look at the book. Uh, Another one of the joys of reading here is the attention to language, which is of course in tumult in this period, right? shifts away from classical forms and classical language. There's an adoption of new terms, which are often the so-called reverse loans from Japanese. And the emergence of a national vernacular uh, means that you're dealing with a very hybrid textual field. Uh, Especially since language is in motion, you are careful in your translations. Can you tell us maybe practically how one can deal with such linguistic complexity? I'm sure you're not the only scholar working on China who has to... uh, think about how many different synonyms of this particular term exist and what they mean precisely. So how do we make sure that our analysis is rigorous in this type of situation? For me, the most important thing was that I was able to add the original Chinese to every quote I had, that I make in the, in the book. Because I want to give the readers the possibility to, to reread the Chinese original if they have the, the ability to do that. And because translation can be so tricky, particularly when it comes to this time, as you just described, not only because of this wide variety of different um, styles of writing, vernacular and classical and mixture usually of both, um, but also because the terms are so tricky and because they use terms, they use the same terms with very different meanings. And that's particularly true of nation, nationalism, race, racism, uh, not racism, sorry, um, state, etc., etc. So this is why I really wanted to make sure that everybody could see what I had been doing in my translations. Um, and I do miss that in a lot of books, I have to admit. So many books, either they just paraphrase or they tra- give you a translation, but they don't tell you what the Chinese original is. And, and that is problematic sometimes when it's a, a, a yeah, a difficult issue. And when it's about concepts and, and, and what terms matter, I think, yeah, it's, it's better for the reader to, to see for themselves. Basically. Okay. So let's say we've dealt with all this linguistic complexity and we have a national language figured out, by which, of course, I mean that there is the establishment of a vernacular. Perhaps not everybody knows how to read it. Perhaps uh, people are still trying to decide exactly how it functions, but nevertheless, it starts to be published in, especially importantly in the production of textbooks, right? Uh, The kind of newspapers of nationalism, so to speak, right? We all read them in the same language so we can feel we're in the same nation. What story do these textbooks play in your book? These textbooks um, mainly come through the form or are mainly analyzed in my last chapter where I use them to show what became of the assimilation theory, basically. So how did... This theory, which was introduced by Liang Qichao in its nationalist version, um, yeah, how did it develop in the 1920s? And the textbooks of that time show quite clearly that by then the assimilation theory had become an established narrative. And I actually continue this in a recent article published last year in the Journal of Asian History, where I where I go through the 1930s and 1940s to show even more textbooks and how they make use of the assimilation theory. Because I, I felt that the examples I give in my um, in my book might not be enough to convince some readers that this really is, a, is an established narrative and had become one 
certainly all by the 1930s at the latest. Um, so yes, this is this is how I use these publications, and that's also why I I focus on chapters that discuss particular so-called foreign conquest dynasties because how they are described shows very nicely how the assimilation theory is used. Uh, so I was going to ask you about that article later on, but I guess, um, is there anything else you'd like to share about it before we move on to a different question about your more recent work? Um, I actually, I'm, <laughs> I have to admit that I, uh, I'm not focusing on 20th century China anymore. Because the topic of nationalist thinking, to be very honest, is, is really depressing. And looking at what, what happens in uh, in the PRC today under Xi Jinping, and particularly, of course, the, the detention camps in Xinjiang and the cultural politics in Tibet, etc., etc., this is uh, something that is really um, that really depresses me very often. And so I decided to move back in time. As I said, I'm a classical sinologist, so I have this option. And <laughs> I actually moved to the 18th century, focusing on book censorship of the Qianlong Emperor. And then even before that, the books he censored are from the uh, 15th and 16th century. So this is uh, this is my new focus. Um, I also wrote a piece about the question on if the Qing Empire was a colonial empire, because that interested me theoretically. Um, and is also to a certain degree related to what I have been doing um, with regard to nationalist historiography. Um, yeah, but this article I've just been referring to um, from last year, that was, so to speak, a final, the final findings I had with regard to this nationalism project that I wanted to share. Um, and I was also using um, a theory from George Agamben, which I find very interesting about um, uh, the homini sacri. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but <laughs> maybe that goes beyond the scope of this podcast to explain that in detail. Now, read the okay, article. So readers, you have some homework. <laughs> read the article. Uh, in your question, in your answer to my question, you bring up the term colonialism, um, and these two terms, uh, Orientalism and colonialism, come up at towards the end of your book. They're familiar to us in their Western contexts. What about it, their relationship to Chinese nationalism? I mean we think of them as China being the victim of these two uh, historical processes, right? Yeah, definitely. But um, China can be both a victim and a, oh, what's the opposite of victim in English? How do you say that? A victimizer, thank you. Um, and I think in both cases, to me at least, it's very clear that China is both. So Orientalism to me is how we talk about the other particularly from a position of power. And of course, uh, it has there it has been talked about China in an Orientalist way. But if we look at not only what these nationalist thinkers say, but also, I mean, afterwards, what how do Chinese historians, social scientists, politicians, Chinese society describe non-Chinese people living in their closest surroundings? And by that, I mean Tibetans, Mongolians, or these non-Chinese ethnicities in China. How do they talk about them, I think, can be described as being Orientalist, exoticizing, eroticizing at best, but also belittling, um, derogatory, um, um, making them into underdeveloped barbarians on the other, right? Um, this is also something that I describe in, my, in the article, um, where I describe how the barbarians became the non-historic people and became the homini sacri today, 
who are put into camps uh, where they are supposed to be re-educated, remolded, right, assimilated to an extreme degree. Um, so I think, to me at least, that's quite clear. Orientalism is is a concept that can be used in different settings of domination and power uh, than the West and the rest. And when it comes to colonialism, I think it's just very similar. But that was one reason why I, I wrote the other article about the question, was the Qing Empire a colonizing empire? Because I actually don't think so. I don't think that we can conceptualize the Qing as colonizers, but I do think that we can conceptualize the PRC as a colonizer. Um, so uh, the, the Qing Empire, and to a certain degree also the Republic of China um, until 1949, might have been or were victims of colonialism, certainly. But that doesn't mean that the PRC cannot be a colonizer in itself, in its approach to the non-Chinese people. And I think it's very, um, it's a similar development that we see in in Russia when it becomes the Soviet Union and claims to be freeing all the Central Asian peoples from the imperial colonization, but at the same time actually just being a colonizer itself um, in a in a different way, but just as oppressing, just as dominating. Yeah, so that's a pretty grim reality that we have to deal with as scholars. Uh, let me end with a provocation from another scholar, something that comes up in your book. Victor Mayer says, were it not for the Northwestern people, there would be no China. What does that mean? Oh, I love that quote. <laughs> Actually, Victor Mayer in, in the... Uh, in the chapter where this, where I have this quote from, he has a long list, a historical um, list of, of kingdoms and dynasties and statelets that were founded in China and empires, where he shows which of these dynasties were actually founded by non-Chinese people. And it's an incredible uh, large number. Um, I think what he meant by this particularly is that whenever what we call China today was at its largest with regard to territory, you can be certain that it was non-Chinese emperors who did that. So um, China today, the PRC today and its borders are absolutely dependent on the Qing emperors, who were Manchus, of course. Um, And this this is another reason why these Qing emperors have to be described as assimilated emperors, because otherwise it wouldn't make sense that a Chinese nation-state inherits the emperor of some Manchus, right? So... I think this is what what uh, Victor Mayer meant with this with this quote that the the present day China is very much um, dependent on what what earlier non Chinese emperors conquered and how successful they were with their conquests. So a lot of research questions that can be directed towards this uh, idea, perhaps not by you. Perhaps you have been a little bit exhausted by the subject of nationalism. I hope that we will be able to uh, host you again when you have a new new book about these Manchu potentially colonizers, but maybe not colonizers. Uh, it's in the it's in the works, right? <laughs> yeah, mainly the, the censorship. Mainly the censorship, censorship. One. Okay, That's so a book about book project. censorship. Uh, how apt. Uh, thank you very much for your conversation with us today. Uh, listeners, please become readers. Pick up uh, Professor Schneider's book. And keep on listening. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting with you again in the next episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Thank you, Professor Schneider. Thank you so much for having me.